All right, so last week we talked about uh, vulnerability and proper boundaries and relationships. We got started talking about what some of that might look like. And um, just to recap very briefly, so proper, bound, proper relationships are ones where the boundaries are in the right place or are in the appropriate places. So we'll talk about how that um, Adam and Eve lived in a walled garden and that the proper place for the boundaries or for the walls in a relationship or in an intimate relationship are around on the outside while what goes on within that is intimate and vulnerable. And how that I sort of closed with the idea that um, if there's a breach of those walls or, a, a, or, a, or what is meant to be intimate and um, sacred, that's another better way of looking at it maybe. If there's a breach there, often the, the result is to, or the response is to either drop the walls completely and not protect anything that is sacred, or to uh, make the walls, uh, or to strengthen the walls around the outside so that no more destruction can come in. And both of those, both of those responses you do at the cost of your own soul. Because in one response, you, you just give everything away and it doesn't matter anymore which means it's not valued. And the other response is that you protect what is sacred and valued to the point that nothing can nurture that anymore. So either way, you lose the ability to have the intimate relationship and connection. So here's the question then that I wanna talk about tonight. So what do healthy relationships look like? We talk about being created in his image. Well, is it possible to have community in his image? So if all of you bear the image of God in, in some way, shape, or form, that image is being uh, let out, if you will. It's shining out of you in some sense, uh, maybe to greater or lesser degrees, depending on how much you're letting it come out, I suppose, would be one way of looking at it. But is it possible then that if you have that, and you have that, and I have that, that we together, living together in community, can also portray something like the image of God together, not just as individuals, but as a group of people. So you think about the need that we as human beings have for connection. You like connection. So connection is one of our most basic needs, our need for relationship, our need to be loved, our need to relate with each other. Um, We live in connection. Imagine growing up in an orphanage, let's say, as opposed to growing up in a family setting. Whether or not your family was was, was all that good or, or functioned as it should, you still had other people around that you belonged with. Virtue of, by virtue of your bloodline, I suppose. Um, or imagine isolating your entire life instead of enjoying interaction in community. That's another way of thinking about that. We need connection. The problem with relationships is that they can also become our greatest source of pain. So what happens is we, we engage in relationship and let's say you've never been hurt. I do have people that are, that are fairly naive, we could say, that, that just trust everybody. And so they enter into this relationship with someone and that person is completely willing to take advantage of them for their own gain or for their own good or for their own gratification, however you want to say that. And that person is betrayed. What happens? 
that you're betrayed in your relationships, what do you think you're going to do next time you encounter someone? Or, on the flip side, let's say you give yourself away in a trusting relationship and you're treated well. That is also going to affect what you do next time you encounter someone. So relationships with others can also become our greatest sources of pain. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I'm guessing most of you know what it is like to experience rejection. Okay, think back to your school days, or to your time in the youth group, or to your family, or something. I'm guessing you know what that feels like. I was not a popular kid in school, and I dealt with the repercussions of that. I still do in some ways because of rejection. Rejection is a powerful thing. It has the ability to hurt us and affect us when our bodies, our souls, or our identity is not valued as it should. So what happens then is that these interactions over the course of our lives dictate in a large way how we're going to respond today when we meet someone and when we have connection or when we have the opportunity of connection with them. That's why so, okay, so Frank Reed says this, and I've talked about this uh, a few classes ago. He said that uh, people tend to, people assume that the way they were treated at home is A, the way they deserve to be treated now, and B, the way they will tend to treat other people. Whether or not it's right, whether or not it's healthy, we were conditioned to respond certain ways based on the things that were happening around us. And as Frank reads, so rightly says, we gravitate to what feels like home. So your home life is preparing you to live in community otherwise. That's what raising children is. It's raising these little terrors and wonderful people to become profitable members of their community. That's what you're doing. Because all of us are going to spend far more time outside of the home of our parents than in it over the course of our lives. So what you're doing is you're preparing this child to leave. Okay, so you send the child out. Your parents all allowed you to come here, or at least you're here anyway. So you come to Mountain View. You left what was home, whether that was good or bad. You came to serve at Mountain View. And you may have noticed that Mountain View is a place of intense community, right? You're with people all the time, aren't you? Now, if you're an introvert, that stinks. If you're an extrovert, extrovert, that's just wonderful until you crash and burn somewhere about 10 to 12 months because you haven't been taking care of yourself. How do we do with living community in the image of God? Let's think about relationships. So if you, want, if you think about living community in his image, there's two aspects. It starts living together in his image starts with A, begins with a right, with a right relationship to myself, and that in turn, in some ways, is lived out in my relationships with those around me. So proper relationships with those around me begin with my relationship with myself. You say, how, how, how do I have a relationship with myself? Well, <coughs> how do I begin to understand that? I want to talk about that for a bit tonight. Last class period, I introduced the idea of the garden, that each one of us has a garden. So you were created by God. I want you to think about this. You were created by God for safe, delightful, and exhilarating relationship. 
That's how he created you to be. And God created you to experience that within the confines of a safe, vulnerable, intimate relationship. Whether you're married or not, that's how God created us. Your garden was created to be a place of delight and intimacy. So what is your garden? Well, Song of Solomon talks about this, and we're going to look at that in just a minute here. But you, you think of this garden as who you are within yourself, your spirit, your soul. Whatever it is that makes up you is your garden. Okay? What is your responsibility to your garden? Song of Solomon. Faith's not even here once we finally get to the Song of Solomon. Shame, really. Listen to these two verses. This is from the uh, uh, the Jewish the Jewish Study Bible, which actually doesn't uh, <clears throat> follows pretty closely with their with our King James. Song of Solomon four twelve. A garden locked is my own, my bride. A fountain locked, a sealed up spring. Going now to chapter eight. O you who linger in the garden, a lover is listening. Let me hear your voice. Now, if you read through the Song of Solomon, you notice something that's really interesting, which, by the way, I think this is an amazing book. And as I was looking at this, um, it's a poem, actually. So I was looking at this in preparation for class tonight. There's the, the word that came to my mind is sensual. And I don't mean sexual, even though I think the Song of Solomon, if you read through that, definitely has that sexual, um, it's not even overtone, it's just the point of the book, really, in some ways. Um, but think of this, this idea of sensual. So is sensual a good word or a bad word? We kind of think of it negatively, don't we? Like, sensual. But what sensual really means is uh, tangibly, it's a tangible experience of something good. So when you give someone a hug, at least if it's a, a hug that's reciprocated and desired, let's say, um, that's a sensual experience. What you're doing is you're taking how you feel for the other person and you're acting it out physically, which is completely appropriate. Um, dark chocolate can be a sensual experience. Why? Because it's evoking the taste buds. And I don't, I don't mean that in a, in a dirty sense at all. I, I mean that in the sense that God has created us to delight in things that are sensually enjoyable. And so when you think about, uh, when you read through the Song of Solomon, for example, I, the, the, uh, it gets a little plenty descriptive. I've never looked at my wife and thought, you know, the, the hair looks just like a flock of goats on the hills. <laughs> so, okay, it gets awfully descriptive, but there's a reason for that. Um, when you think about the, the sensual descriptions here in, uh, in Song of Solomon, if you think about your garden now, what do you see in your garden from this description? Well, it depends on how you're looking at the book. I want to look at it this way. There's three things that I see in here. A garden locked is my own, my bride. A fountain locked, a sealed up spring. Oh, you who linger in the garden, a lover is listening. Let me hear your voice. A garden locked is my own, my bride. What does this tell us about your garden? Your garden is a place to be guarded. It says a garden locked. There's a reason that your garden is to be guarded. Your garden is not for everyone to enjoy. Now, who you are, they get to experience the, the joy of who you are because of what's going on inside of you. 
But your garden is not just a place for anybody to, to enter in and to walk through and to take what they will and to treat it the way they want. We tend to think of saving yourself for marriage as a commandment or an invitation to abstain from sexual experience outside of marriage. I think that's correct, but I think it also goes a lot farther than that. Because your garden is more than your body. Your garden is what's sacred. <coughs> so everything about you that is sacred belongs in that garden. And God created that to be intimately delighted in. But not by whomsoever will. So when you think about not giving away what is sacred, we might not uh, struggle so much with, um, you know, illicit relationships sexually, but we don't always do so well with illicit relationships emotionally, either in giving ourselves away or in taking from others what is not ours to take. Think about that. To keep yourself guarded means to not give away anything that is sacred outside of marriage. Emotions, heart, and body. What else do we see in these verses? A fountain locked, a sealed up spring. Your garden is the place where you give and receive life. So when the, this goes back a little bit to what we were talking about last time, especially, um, I would say this is true for men and women, actually. Uh, that the, the, um, God cares an awful lot about what you do with the life-giving parts of you. I talked about that this in Genesis class, it, uh, all the way back probably in the fall of 2021 or something like that, about how God commanded the children of Israel to circumcise their sons. And the reason he did that, well, there's, there's a number of reasons, but I think probably the biggest reason God told the Israelites to do that is because he wanted them to put the sign of the covenant on the part of their bodies that was responsible for producing life. And that was not to be violated. In other words, what you do with the part of you that is responsible for giving life, for continuing on what God has designed, needs to be sacred. And God even went so far as to say that you're not to, out, to marry people from outside the community. If you do have children with people outside the community, they're not supposed to come into the temple for up to 10 generations in some cases. Because they were to create, they were to raise up a seed that was solely pure for God. So when we think about the life-giving parts of us, whether it's physically, whether it's the, uh, the emotions and the spirit that God has placed within us, that is not to be just given away freely. Your garden is a place where you receive, where you give and receive life. Thirdly, I want to go back to uh, Song of Solomon 8.13. Listen to this. Oh, you who linger in the garden, a lover is listening. Let me hear your voice. Your garden is the place of intimate relationship with the one who loves you. The one who will listen and linger and also the one who will value your garden as a sacred place. And that does not end after you get married. That should grow after you get married. That your garden, that who you are is valued as sacred. All of this, I think, could be accurately wrapped up to say your garden is sacred. Now, you might not believe that it's sacred. 
You could think of, uh, of uh, a prostitute, for example, who would say, well, I've given everything away many, many times over. It doesn't matter anymore. But in actuality, it does. Because just because you violate it does not mean that it's now less sacred. It means the garden has been breached. But it doesn't take away the fact that that is still sacred and it's valuable. Even in its ruin, the garden is sacred and needs to be valued as if it's sacred. So what has sin done to us? <clears throat> Think about uh, God creating us with that within that that perfect wall, that perfect garden. So what has sin done as it entered the world and as we've grown up with it? We've stopped seeing ourselves as sacred. As a result, we turn to wrong things to fill the void. That's one response. Or we act as if the need for intimacy and delight does not exist. So here's something that happens um, especially in cases where the garden has been um, violated, your sacredness has been violated. We either turn to other things to fill up the wounds, and I've talked about this in class before too, about the shame cycle, about how the, we, we go through this cycle of uh, feeling a need, and then we turn to the wrong thing to fill that need, and then we feel gratified for a moment, and then on the backside of that, we feel shame, which reinforces the need and how we go through that cycle again and again and again. That's one thing we do. The other thing we tend to do is to say, okay, so the areas in which I was, which God created me to delight and to find joy were violated. Therefore, it's wrong for me to wish that I could be delighted in and enjoyed the way God intended. Does that make sense? So rather than trying to fill the need, we just try to shut it off completely and act as if it doesn't exist. Both of those responses end up leaving us hungry. What else has sin done to us? We put walls in all the wrong places. And our ways of coping reinforce and repeat our pain instead of bringing healing. So I said back at the beginning that the, the ability to live community out in his image starts with a right relationship with myself. And these are all things that we struggle with. And it affects our abilities, our ability to, to get along well with each other. So what does a healthy person look like? A number of things here. Some of these are, I took from uh, a class by Frank Reed. Characteristics of a healthy person. They tell themselves the truth. One of the ways in which that is done is no matter how, okay, no matter how your garden has been violated, God still has something to say about it. In fact, while we were yet sinners, as Romans says, Christ died for us. Whether or not we value what God has given us, whether or not we think it's clean, whether or not we think it's broken, whether or not we, we've, it's been destroyed or we've given it away, God saw it as valuable enough to come to the earth <coughs> to and when you begin to believe that you will also begin to value who he made you to be now, I, humbleness is, is definitely a, humbleness and brokenness is something that um, we need to learn but at the same time humbleness includes a high view of self 
because that's how God sees it. Telling the truth means putting forward what he says above what I feel. What else does a healthy person do? They keep their circumstances from controlling their lives and responses. One of the ways you can think about that is, uh, do you happen to life or does life happen to you? In other words, when you, as you go through your day, okay, I'm guessing we all struggle with this to a certain extent. I know I do, especially when I'm tired, right? Because uh, we, we get into situations where we're stressed, where we're not at the top of our game, and we tend to react to life and to whatever's going on around us as opposed to what? As opposed to being in control. Healthy people keep their circumstances from controlling their lives and their responses. They allow themselves to fail without becoming depressed, and they allow others to fail without becoming discouraged. Healthy people recognize they are wounded, healed, and broken. A couple of classes ago, I brought out a quote by Franz Schaeffer uh, talking about how that mankind is a glorious, re glorious ruin. They recognize their glorious ruin is re being redeemed by God through the person of Jesus Christ. I want to read something for you. Again, another uh, quote by Frank Reed. A person who is broken in spirit does not demand, he asks. His focus is not on getting all that he deserves because he knows he has been spared from what he really deserves. He is grateful instead of complaining. He has tasted mercy and he is done with demanding rights. Healthy people maintain realistic expectations and proper boundaries. I want you to think about that. You live in a fallen world. You're a fallen person. Now you're redeemed. You're never going to be more saved than you are right now. You might be more sanctified, but you're not more saved. What kind of realistic expectations should you have about yourself? 1 Peter 1.16, I think it says, it's a quote from the Old Testament, Be perfect, for I am perfect. You've heard that verse? You ever feel guilty about it? I'm not standing up here trying to convince you that you know God's standard is you know somewhat less than it is or anything like that. But if we were perfect, Paul talks about this, we would make the cross of Christ of none effect. Right? Having a proper understanding of myself means that I know I'm going to fail. It's not an excuse to fail, but it allows me to have realistic expectations. Yesterday morning I was out running for the first time in about a month and uh, I was like you know what I should really just you know stick you know get my mind into this thing and, and do a marathon sometime because I would like to run a marathon mostly for the bragging rights right so there goes my humble thing um, anyway real realistic expectations it's not gonna happen tomorrow but if I hold myself to that and I decide that tomorrow morning if I don't get up and do this, I'm going to feel guilty and it's going to be my fault that I didn't uphold my expectations. What was the problem? I didn't have realistic expectations. Part of believing, part of telling ourselves the truth is also 
recognizing that it is Christ who saves us to the uttermost, not ourselves. Healthy people maintain realistic expectations and proper boundaries. Okay, our garden is to be sacred with walls around it. So I drew this up on the board last time. Something like this. Our garden is to be sacred with walls around it. How do we do that in community? So here I am. Here's someone else. Here's, you know, we're surrounded by all of these people. How do we do that well? Is it possible to do that well? come to the idea of boundaries in community. Again, a lot of this stuff is taken from uh, Frank Reed's teachings. Let's look at boundaries for a minute. Boundaries are definitions of personal space. So in the United States, our, uh, our acceptable personal space is somewhere around 36 inches, arm's length. You ever been to another country where it's less than that? It's a little invasive, isn't it? Uh, I remember when I was in Tibet, the, uh, the guy walking alongside me, um, okay, so I was, how old was I? I was 21, had a little more hair than I do now, uh, actually a lot more, and um, like, the, like he would just, this guy just came up to me on the street, holds my hand and touches my face, all while his face is like that far away. In his culture, completely acceptable. Not so much in mine. Like you go to the mall and try that sometime. Just see what happens. <laughs> um, so we have differences in boundaries. I understand that. Boundaries are definitions of personal space. I want you to, there's something I want you to get from about boundaries. It's this. Boundaries are not there to keep others out. They are there to protect what's sacred. But just think about that. Because what tends to happen is if somebody crosses my boundaries... And I need to say, wait a second, the line is here. A, narciss a narcissist will say, you're being mean to me and pushing me out. They're making, they, they make you the person at fault for maintaining the boundaries. When it's like, no, I'm not doing this to keep you away. I'm doing this because I'm protecting what's important in here. Boundaries are not there to keep others out. Good boundaries honor and respect that which is to be sacred. Okay, what do boundaries help us do? Boundaries help us to identify ourselves as unique individuals. They protect my personal space from unhealthy imposition. And if I have proper boundaries, I control myself instead of allowing others to control me. Boundaries also help us not to control others or be responsible for other people's feelings or use others to meet my needs in ways that are unhealthy for me. And we're going to talk about that here specifically in a little bit. All right. Can you see how boundaries might become a problem in Mountain View? Okay, so just because you all grew up in the United States of America, or at least you're familiar with this culture, doesn't mean that you have the same boundaries, does it? Because maybe the boundaries were different in your family than they were in yours. So cultural problems aside, what do we do when boundaries are legitimately crossed? When there's legitimately a problem going on? Well, we often respond with one of the following two responses. When boundaries are crossed. Now, we don't just do this when boundaries are crossed. But there's other ways in which we do this.
placate or we control. I want you to think about it that in this way. What do you do when someone is angry? Do you ever feel uncomfortable when you see somebody in the room that's visibly upset? What's your response? Some of us, and, and, and I suppose we could find both of these responses uh, at various times. Some of us are feel it rising up within us to go over there and make them stop and tell them how unreasonable they're being and fix the situation. Others of us want to be quiet and hide and slink down in our chairs or get away from this because we don't want to make the situation any worse because somebody's upset and I'm scared. Well, now imagine that the anger is directed at you. What do you do? Do you placate? Okay, fine. You, you just back away from the conflict. Anything to avoid the conflict. And so you just, uh, whatever they say, fine, I'm sorry, I, I was wrong. Or the other response might be to control them and to rise up and say, no, you're not going to do that to me, and here, here, here and you know, top-down approach. So our personalities, our past experiences are going to dictate, likely, how we respond. But often, well, this is another another teaching by Frank Reed I admit I'm borrowing heavily from some of his ideas tonight. We generally respond as a parent, as a child, or as an adult. One of the things that's interesting about these three things is that all of us have the capacity for these things, even young or old, at any given time. So you look, you think of a, a four-year-old daughter, Anya, who turns four tomorrow, actually. Uh, she's playing with her friends at home at our house, and they're playing with her toys. Now, in the space of like 30 seconds, she can be each one of these three things. Somebody takes her toy, and she can say, respond as a parent. So the response from a parent might be uh, controlling or, or um, manipulative to try to, to try to get the results from the situation that they want. So a child takes her toy, her friend, and she says, no, you can't do that, and she walks over and grabs it. That's a parent response. Or she might say, uh, I want my toy back, and the child says, no, and because she's scared, she'll keep it. She backs off. That's a child response. Well, how does an adult respond? Get to that in a second. But let's say you have two people. Person number one has the ability to respond as parent, adult, or child. Person number two has the ability to respond as parent, adult, or child. You all see that? So the parent is controlling and combative. The child is appeasing and forsaking responsibility. The emotions dictate the response. And the adult has a congruent response. We'll talk about that word congruent here in a little bit. With facts, emotions, and community all coming to bear on the interaction. So, let's say um, <coughs> the problem with talking about relationships is that right now all of my relationships are here. So I give examples and talking about you. So I have to be careful with that. Um, okay, we'll use this example. So your neighbor's dog, your dog ran over into your neighbor's yard and deposited his uh, stool, not that stool, in the man's flower bed. So you're outside taking out the trash, and the neighbor comes over and says, rawr, 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 rawr. your dog, this and this and that, I've told you a hundred times not to do that. Whatever. Your neighbor is talking as a parent. Now, how do you respond to that? 
you could respond as a parent and say something equally mean and combative and escalatory to your neighbor and the conflict goes up from there. Or you could respond to a child and say, oh, I'm so, so sorry that this will never happen again. And, or, and you can walk away from that situation feeling wretched and awful because uh, you're just such a horrible person and you can't keep your dog straight. If you can't keep your dog in line, how are you going to do anything else in life that's worth doing, etc., etc. Or you could respond as an adult and say, yes, I'm sorry, my dog was in your yard. I will do what I can to keep him out. Now what happens when you respond parent to parent? The situation gets worse. What happens when you respond child to parent? I want you to think about this. That, the placating response looks non-resistant, doesn't it? What happens? You get resentful because you never actually get to say what you think. And I've seen people in my own family, especially, that don't know how to have conflict. They've never learned to say what they think. Therefore, anytime there's something contentious or uh, potentially conflicting going on, they all respond by placating. And you guess what happens? Nothing. And nobody wins and nobody walks away happy because outwardly it looks like I did the right thing and inwardly I'm stewing and bitter and resentful because A, I don't respect myself enough to say what I think and B, I don't respect them enough to say what I think. What happens when you respond as an adult? When you respond as an adult, what you're doing is you're inviting the other person to also act as an adult. So somebody lashes out at you. If you respond calmly, you're inviting them to take the high road and respond calmly. So what happens when you have conflict in relationships or when you have boundaries caused in relationships? You have this person with their boundaries here, this person with their boundaries here. Now if I lash out at you, I crossed my boundaries. <coughs> I shouldn't have done that. But someone else crossing their boundary does not give you the right to cross yours. Think about that. That happens in relationships, but it also happens in a lot of other places too. Someone else dropping their boundaries or not respecting where they should be does not give me the right to also act in ways that I shouldn't. So even if you, so when you have this, the, the interaction or the conflict, even if you cross your line, I still maintain my boundaries. And by doing that, I'm inviting you to now respond as an adult. So who is responsible for good boundaries within the community? So Sigmund Freud, for all of his faults and inaccuracies, he noticed something interesting. He noticed that we tend to cross boundaries and use other people to fill the needs in our lives that aren't being properly met. And that's an example of boundary crossing. And one of the, probably the most famous example of that is what he called the Oedipal Complex, which is, uh, and, and he got some of this wrong too, actually. But the basic premise of it is that you have a mother who is not properly integrated in the community. And so she doesn't have the relationships and the support she needs, maybe from her husband or from her friends or her peers or her, you know, the people in church or whatever. She doesn't get that. She's not getting the support she needs. 
and she needs relationship and support. So what she does is she turns to her children to provide for her what she's not getting in the community. What happens to the children? Now the child is being forced to act as an adult. The child is now being coerced into being mommy's emotional support. Well, children were not created to bear the emotional needs of their parents. What happens is you're robbing the child of their ability to be a child, and you're robbing yourself of the ability to have good relationships in the community because instead of working on the things that need to be worked on on the, on the horizontal level, you're willing to go somewhere else and hurt that person to meet the need in your own life. And uh, what Freud noticed in the Oedipal Complex is that the mother would basically make a deal with the child. Now, the deal wasn't, it wasn't uh, you know, hammered out on paper and things like that. This is essentially what happened. The mother essentially treated the child like this. I'll meet all of your needs. I'll do everything for you. You will be my emotional support, but the cost that you pay is that you never grow up, get to grow up and leave. Because you know what happens if you raise your children properly? They leave. All of you have left. Now, some of you might go back and you might be there longer than others, but that's essentially what we do. So that the mother thinks, if I let you grow up, you'll leave and then I'll be alone again. Therefore, I'm willing to not let you grow up from the, from the, uh, in, the, in the societal way, but I want you to be the parent in the relationship in the sense that you lift me up emotionally. So Freud noticed that when I don't have my boundaries in the right place, I'm also perfectly willing to not respect yours. Song of Solomon 1.6. My mother's sons quarreled with me. They made me guard the vineyards, my own vineyard I did not guard. What is happening? My mother's sons quarreled with me. They made me guard the vineyards, my own vineyard I did not guard. What happened here? Look at the men in the family. They did not take responsibility for their gardens. How do you know that? Because they made her do it. Men did not take responsibility for their gardens. In other words, they were a child. They made her responsible to maintain their boundaries. So they made her the parent. And she did this to the violation of her own sacred and intimate garden. When we put our responsibility on others, we rob ourselves and them of the, experience, of the ability to experience life as God intended. How does this actually get played out? I'm going to use one example of this. Is it important for men and women to dress modestly? I say yes. I know of a man, some of you would know his name if I said it because he's been a fairly influential teacher uh, in our circles over the past decades, who told a woman once, she was the, uh, the person that was helping out after his wife had a baby. He told her she shouldn't wear a dress with buttons up the front because it makes men's trouble. Would she feel safe with a man like that? What did he just do? He made her responsible for him keeping his boundaries in the right place. That's wrong. And when we do that, when we make other people responsible for my boundaries, 
A, I rob myself of the ability to choose. Because I'm saying, if you act in certain ways, well, this is just what's going to happen to me. And I rob them of their ability to keep their garden. So who's responsible for good boundaries? It's me. You know why? Because I'm the only one that gets to have my boundaries. They get, I'm the, the only boundaries that I can dictate on my own. That's it. I don't get to tell you where to put yours. I can invite you to have yours in the right place by doing the right thing myself. But I don't get to control other people. Healthy boundaries make for good relationships. Why? Because when my, oh, never mind. When my boundaries are in the right place, it allows life, be, it's not so much, it's not so strict that nothing can come in and nothing come out. It's that life flows in and life flows out, all while guarding what is sacred to me. And when I have my boundaries in the right place, I allow you to flourish by being near me. I think it is possible to live community in his image. I think it's a lot more complicated than what I've talked about tonight. But think about it this way. Well, I think I better drop that thought for now. Actually, I think we'll pick up there.